Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. In each episode, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Carl Ernst of the University of North Carolina about his new book, How to Read the Quran, A New Guide with Select Translations, from University of North Carolina Press. Recent events revolving around the Quran such as the accidental burning of it in Afghanistan, suggests that Westerners often still fail to understand the role of the Quran in Muslims' lives. On occasion, the mere suggestion of having Westerners read the Quran in order to gain a better understanding of its message has incited anger and even lawsuits, as was the case at the University of North Carolina in 2002. The inability of many to bridge these cultural differences and the inherent challenges the Quran possesses inspired Carl Ernst to to write this new book. He wondered, how should the non-Muslim read the Quran? This comprehensive introduction presents a literary historical approach that enables the reader to understand how the Quran's initial audience encountered it through a chronological reading traditionally understood through the early Meccan, later Meccan, and Medinan periods of Muhammad's career. It introduces a reading that understands the structure and form of the text as informing the meaning. Thus, Ernst examines the symmetry and balanced compositions of verses, the tripartite structure of certain chapters, intertextuality within the Quran, and uses rhetorical analysis and ring composition as a means to approach and understand seemingly contradictory religious claims. Ernst's text is engaging and informative while achieving its goal of making the Quran accessible to the non-Muslim reader. His new book will certainly motivate a future group of Quranic studies scholars and will allow the uninitiated reader to better understand what the previously veiled text says about the cosmos and the Muslims' positions in it. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hello, I'm Carl Ernst. I'm a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I teach and write on Islamic studies and have been doing so for over 30 years. My academic training was at Harvard University in the study of religion, where I did uh, Greek philosophy and Islamic studies, and I was fortunate enough to work with some really fine scholars in the field, including uh, Anna Marie Schimmel, with whom I studied Arabic and Persian texts relating to Islamic mysticism and Sufism, and Wilfred Cantwell Smith, who was a major figure in Islamic studies and comparative religion and a number of other very fine uh, scholars. I actually started to work in the field of Islamic studies for a couple of reasons. One, you might say, was a a pull reason or an attraction, and that was my interest in uh, mystical poetry, particularly Persian and Arabic poetry related to the Sufi tradition. And from a Fairly early stage, after I was an undergraduate, I became interested in the poetry of Hafez and Rumi and uh, 
got into that and found it to be quite a rewarding uh, pursuit. At the same time, I had also been impressed from an early period with the problem that uh, many Americans have of not really knowing much about the rest of the world. And this problem is a kind of a push factor, as you may consider it. Uh, in other words, I began to ask myself, what are the biggest areas of ignorance in American culture? And it seemed to me that, frankly, there's a lot of Americans who simply are not exposed to other cultures and uh, philosophies and religions. But particularly, even when I was a student, it was clear to me that Islam was an area of tremendous ignorance. And I believe that's still fairly much the case, uh, despite the fact that we've had a big growth in the field uh, academically uh, over the past few years. But so for those reasons, briefly put, I found myself uh, moving into the area of Islamic studies as part of religious studies. And this is, was pretty much, in my view, a uh, and continues to be a humanistic endeavor, which means studying a very important part of human civilization, which should be accessible to any interested person. And fortunately, our university systems are very supportive of, the, of this kind of endeavor. And I've had a very uh, rewarding career in, in pursuing various aspects of Islamic studies. Now, as far as this particular book is concerned, How to Read the Quran, A New Guide with Select Translations, I was actually approached by um, a publisher who suggested that I attempt to produce a new translation of the Quran. I thought about that for quite a while and eventually decided that this was not really uh, what I wanted to do because, frankly, people lack the tools to read the Quran at all. And I eventually changed my approach to focus on a, a guide to how to read the Quran. Now, I should also add a couple of other incidents or backgrounds for taking this project on. And it should be acknowledged that Quranic studies as a subset of Islamic studies is a pretty specialized field. In fact, it's one of the most forbiddingly difficult Orientalist fields of special specialization in Islamic studies. A lot of it is written in very difficult, hard-to-find places, oftentimes in German or other languages, and so it's not easy to get a handle on. But we had an incident that took place uh, here at the University of North Carolina 10 years ago, which uh, some people may recall because it it really achieved a lot of publicity at the time. And that was that the University of North Carolina, where I teach, has a summer reading program, like many universities and colleges in America do, which offers incoming students a shared intellectual experience of reading a single book over the course of the summer before they begin their first year of college. And usually they have a discussion of the book, and it might be a book about social issues or 
science and economy or racism or something like this, which addresses an issue that is important. And typically these are viewed as ways to get people to think about interesting ideas rather than simply, you know, being an endorsement or something of that kind. But uh, in the spring of 2002, with 9-11 very much on everyone's mind, the summer reading program committee at the University of North Carolina was really stuck because they didn't know whether they should read a book on terrorism or on the Middle East or Afghanistan or what. And the chair of the committee, who was a very uh, fine scholar of literature here, approached me and asked if there was a translation of the Quran that would be suitable for assigning to all of our incoming students. And I had a very quick answer to that. I said, there's only one text that I would consider to be appropriate, and that was a, a very fine literary translation of the short surahs at the end of the Quran, which Michael Sells published under the title Approaching the Quran. Now, I didn't even imagine this would prove to be controversial, and I was certainly quite wrong in that respect, because UNC was sued by a uh, right-wing uh, evangelical group from Virginia, of all places, and attacked on Fox News, and even uh, harshly criticized in the state legislature of North Carolina. So this was a big controversy, and it really uh, demonstrated to me that there are a lot of people who are so upset about the existence of the Quran that they really have no idea what to do with it. And we've seen this more recently in controversies about a pastor in Florida who wanted to burn the Quran last year, and he got a phone call from some top uh, military and political officials begging him not to do so because this would cause tremendous problems for American soldiers overseas and so forth. So I think uh, this anxiety over the existence of the Quran and whether it comes from religious or secular points of view uh, is a really a good reason why we need to have a better way to do this using the tools that universities can provide through the humanities, particularly through history and literary studies. So those were the uh, occasions for me to put together this book. And uh, I took it as an opportunity also to familiarize myself with all of the most recent research. And there's some um, really fine collections of uh, scholarly material in the encyclopedia of the Quran that was published uh, a few years ago in five volumes by uh, E.J. Brill, which is pretty readable for an academic uh, encyclopedia. And there's a lot of material that I worked through in German and uh, found to be extremely important, but I don't think it's been absorbed in the current scholarship in English. So uh, I really learned a lot and discovered a lot of things I was not uh, expecting, and it was really a great experience. Carl, um, maybe you could discuss some of the some of the actual challenges that uh, non-Muslims have when they approach the Quran. Certainly. <clears throat> well, I think the first one that everyone has to deal with is that the Quran is organized in a way that will strike most people as unfamiliar and, frankly, uh, incomprehensible. It's divided into 114 chapters called surahs, and the first thing that one would have to observe about this is that they are basically organized according to size, uh, with some exceptions. I mean, the very first surah, surah number one, the opening is, is very short. It's only seven verses long. But after that, surah number two is the longest. Surah number three is the second longest. And there's an unmistakable progression with, with a few minor deviations. But the, 
The result is that the very long ones are at the beginning of the Quran, and the very, very short ones are at the end. I mean, this is quite obvious if you look at the uh, page numbers in the table of contents. For most people, that seems kind of odd, although, as a matter of fact, this is a principle of organization that's found in the letters of St. Paul in the New Testament, for instance, which are organized in, in that kind of decreasing size uh, progression and other texts like that. But anyway, so that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, it's fairly widely agreed uh, in traditional Muslim scholarship as well as in modern academic work that the Quran was delivered over a period of time in sections and pieces which were uh, put together at some point uh, in a process which is still not understood. Uh, but the result is that the material that is at the very beginning of the Quran in Surah number two, for instance, is some of the last material that was delivered. And so it contains many different references to things that will be completely unfamiliar to a reader who just picks it off the shelf. And so starting on page one, is really going to be almost impossible for most readers. And frankly, anyone who, who starts the Quran that way at the beginning and reads all the way through to the end is probably motivated only by duty because it would be really hard to make much sense of it in that, in that order. And so uh, this is one reason why I think uh, the chronological approach to reading the Quran, in other words, trying to select the pieces that were delivered in the earliest stages first and then progressing through over the course that scholarship assigns to this uh, chronology. This really provides a meaningful way to uh, experience the Quran, but you have to really uh, be able to have access to the scholarship or to at least some kind of a scheme that will show you the chronological uh, way to approach the Quran. So that is one major uh, problem that I think we can address by uh, guiding people through the sequence of the Quran's original delivery. There are a number of other problems that um, readers will have to confront. And these include, for instance, a particular stylistic feature, which is well known in Arabic and other uh, languages of the Near East, which involves a rapid uh, dramatic shift of, of attention, where, for instance, you suddenly shift from one sentence to the next, from I to you, or from we to he. And this kind of shift, uh, for the reader who's not prepared or who's not familiar with the material, it's almost like reading a Shakespearean play without knowing who the actors are speaking the different parts. And so uh, one needs to have a certain handle on, on uh, this type of style to be able to uh, approach it without being hopelessly confused. And I, had, I would add one more uh, stylistic issue about the Quran that is difficult for the first-time reader, and that is the Quran addresses many themes that are present in biblical and other texts, including prophets going back to Adam and Abraham and Moses, Jesus and, and, and others. But it very rarely tells a story at any length. Uh, so people who are expecting to hear stories similar to you, what you find in Genesis and, and so forth will be surprised because the Quran just basically assumes that everyone knows these stories 
and refers to them very briefly and elliptically. And it has a very different kind of structure. And and going into that structure is one of the things that I uh, want to help readers do. So um, along with this chronological reading, you apply literary theory, a literary approach. Could you explain uh, how one would use this literary approach and, uh, and why it benefits the non-Muslim reader? Well, uh, the literary approach, uh, frankly, in, in part, is not only to make use of the tools that we have from literary criticism, but also to treat the Quran as a literary text and to bracket out or to leave aside uh, for the time being the consideration of its uh, status as a revelation. In other words, for the vast majority of non-Muslim readers, it shouldn't be necessary to decide on the spot you know, whether you accept this as the word of God or not. Because if that's the price of admission, then frankly, uh, I think it sort of closes down the conversation for a lot of people because they're not going to go there. And in fact, the Quran uh, really quite explicitly recognizes the multiplicity of religious views as a kind of fact of, of human life and even part of the divine plan. So I don't think that even in wildest imagination, it would it be conceivable that everybody would suddenly you know, convert to Islam. So the question is then, what is an appropriate re- method for non-Muslims to use to read it? And so that's the approach that I'm taking. Uh, now, we have models for this in the study of the Bible as literature. This is a well-developed kind of academic approach you can find in a lot of colleges and universities where you can discuss the history of the text, its composition, its audience, the, the way in which it was transmitted, uh, its interpretive history. Uh, and you can also apply the tools of, let's take a look at metaphor, or what types of stylistic features are present. Are there uh, oral formulas? Are there internal structures of organization? Uh, these are the kinds of questions you can ask of the Quran. And so uh, a lot of this stuff, I mean, is frankly not controversial at all, whether you're a Muslim or a non-Muslim, but is really about the, the building blocks that uh, the Quran uses. And there are elements such as irony. Uh, uh, there are uh, thematic features such as description of the end times or the, the day of judgment with the depictions of heaven and hell. These are very, very clear stylistic features, also the signs of God in nature. There are lengthy descriptions of of the life of of creation, the uh, plants and animals and water and and the bounty of nature and how God has produced all of this. And so there are different themes and so forth, as well as, of course, the great story of prophecy and the story of how all the prophets have faced the problem of people who reject their message. So if you present to people the elements that are to be found in many parts of the Quran, then they are in a better position to comprehend them and figure out what's going on in the particular passage. So the, the way you outline this book, uh, you basically begin with the early Meccan surahs, you move to the middle and later Meccan surahs, and then you end with the Medinan surahs. Um, yes. In relation to the early Meccan surahs, you discuss this uh, apocalyptic imagery. I'm wondering yes. if you can... Uh, discuss how this kind of defines the character of the Quran and how this relates to the historical environment of pre-Islamic Arabia. Yes. 
Well, it's. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said about the the whole topic of apocalyptic in the Quran and the expectation of the afterlife. And of course, this is a widespread form of religious consciousness in, throughout the Near East and the Mediterranean. And not only is it found among the biblical uh, texts and uh, Jewish and Christian sources, but also in Iranian religions and, and elsewhere. So uh, the Quran is actually drawing upon that whole repertoire uh, in this sense. And there is also, you know, of course, um, the, the notion of the afterlife is something which has been uh, on everyone's mind as far as we know in the history of uh, humanity. So uh, there's also kind of an interesting material background to this in the Arabian Peninsula. Sometimes it's said that the uh, pre-Islamic Arabs were basically devil-may-care tribal people who just enjoyed life and drinking and fighting and loving and, and had no thought for tomorrow. But it's actually quite interesting to see how widespread funerary monuments and massive cemeteries are in the Arabian Peninsula. In the island of Bahrain, for instance, there were vast historic uh, cemeteries in, pre in ancient times and also in, in the Arabian Peninsula itself. And so this was on people's minds. And if we look at also the ancient cities of the Nabataeans, who were kind of uh, Arabic-speaking precursors of the modern, of the more recent Arabs, uh, Petra in Jordan or uh, the city of Hijr in northern Arabia, vast stone tombs which were obviously focused obsessively on the afterlife, which were probably the scenes of uh, funerary ceremonies involving feasting and so forth. Death was on people's mind. And what happens after death? So uh, the Quran addresses all of this in powerful, poetic imagery of great density and uh, great poetic uh, uh, persuasion. And this is very prominent in the early Meccan stories. And let me just go back to the question of the chronology for a moment. You referred to the Meccan and Medinan uh, uh Division. This corresponds roughly to the to the career of the Prophet Muhammad as we understand this from the historical sources. And we have to kind of use this lightly because it's difficult to attach particular verses of the Quran with any confidence to uh, particular dates of history. It's very difficult to, to line that up. But if we take the general story as more or less uh, an acceptable framework, in other words, from roughly the year 610, when he began his career as a prophet in Mecca, until 622. During that time, uh, a good deal of the Quran was delivered, and uh, European scholars divided that into early, middle, and late sections, primarily on stylistic grounds. And then uh, when he left uh, Mecca for Medina to take up a uh, position uh, as uh, arbitrator between the tribes and ruler of the city, uh, there was an additional sequence of surahs of the Quran that were delivered that were uh, actually much longer and much more involved with the debates of the times and uh, rather quite different style from the early Meccan ones. So uh, in any case, the, the apocalyptic was present from an early stage in the, uh, in the first Meccan revelations, and it describes heaven and hell in sometimes quite uh, astonishing dramatic detail, 
including the punishments of hellfire and the delights of the Garden of Paradise. And this seems to have been a tough sell. And it, the early Meccan suras, all the way up through the all the way through the Meccan suras uh, till the end, uh, there are many references to the fact that a lot of the audience that Muhammad had in Mecca simply rejected this notion of the afterlife. Uh, and he would, you know, the Quran presents this with a lot of uh, rhetorical power debating with the Meccans. Uh, but this seems to have been a point that uh, they were kind of resistant to, although it probably was something that really got their attention. But uh, the apocalyptic is also a place where the injustices of this world uh, are equalized. And the miser, the wealthy man, the people who are unconcerned with the lot of the poor, the helpless, the orphan, and the weak, they will suffer a punishment because of their belief that they are self-sufficient and they don't need God or anything else to take care of them. And so the, the Quran depicts this kind of retribution and reward for, for the virtuous as the uh, primary features of the drama of resurrection and judgment. This brings up a good point. Uh, in the book, you talk a lot about the audience and the relationship between the audience and revelation. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk a little bit about uh, how the Quran is developed in a dialogical conversation, basically? Yeah, this is a very helpful way to, to look at it, because uh, if we can imagine the response of the uh, the initial audience to a text that's being delivered in sections over a period of years, then we can actually see how the text might have been affected by the questions that people had as things went along. And I think this process makes sense if we can imagine that the early parts of the Quran were being used in worship service, essentially, as liturgical uh, repetitions that would have been uh, very well known to people after a while because they were reciting them on a regular basis. Uh, texts such as the opening prayer, the Al-Fatiha, the Surah number one, which is uh, widely regarded as a prayer and is used on countless occasions by, by Muslims in practice today. Now, uh, what is... Uh, Interesting is that not only is the Quran using material that is expected to be familiar to the audience, in other words, references to the prophets like Abraham and Moses, but it's also introducing some new terminology, which is uh, quite deliberately introduced as a strange term. And so we find on a dozen or more occasions, the Quran will say, it will mention some new phrase or name or term, and then it say, and how do you know what such and such is, when it introduces the phrase, the night of power, and then it, it says, and how do you know what the night of power is? And so there's a sense in which the Quran is quite clearly uh, commenting on the fact that these terms are new and uh, unexpected. So we can probably assume, therefore, that the audience would have four terms like that, as well as other passages, wondered what they meant because sometimes they are enigmatic and mysterious, which is not at all unusual in a sacred text of this kind. And it's also the case that the earliest Meccan revelations 
are typically couched in a very dense poetic form with short lines, maybe five or six words. And the rhymes are repeated for uh, half a dozen lines, and the rhyme may change, sometimes introduce a new subject. But you get certain uh, suras that have this remarkably dense, short, poetic line, and all of a sudden you'll have a whole paragraph that's in a completely different style. And uh, this has the appearance of being a later edition that was inserted in order to respond to the questions of people who were puzzled by an enigmatic passage. And there are other cases where, for instance, the phrase, except for, is found. And, for instance, when um, in the discussion of the nighttime vigil, where uh, it is recommended that everyone should stay up and pray all night long, or, or for a good part of the night, this is actually kind of modified in the course of the text, and also there are exceptions that are put in of people who don't have to stay up late at night meditating. And so these passages have the appearance of being the result of a dialogue between the Quran and its audience. Um, another feature that you introduce uh, uh, is this idea of ring composition. Could you explain what, what this is and, and how this helps understand the longer passages? Yes. Uh, ring composition or symmetrical uh, structure is a, uh, a fascinating topic, and I have to admit it took me a while to get into it. Uh, I first heard of this um, quite some years ago in reference to a, a literary text that was in a form of Hindi, and I wasn't at all sure what was meant by this uh, literary structure that was concentric or symmetrical. And so I, I was initially kind of skeptical. But as I began to read more about this recently, I have realized that this is a feature of a lot of ancient literature. In other words, the beginning and the end correspond to each other. And oftentimes there are not only uh, reflections symmetrically of, of short passages, but there are long compositions where you may have uh, three or four steps going inward towards a center. Uh, that are mirrored by three or four steps coming out. And so you have separate sections that are uh, reflective of each other. And then what's in the center is the meaning. Now, this has been discussed uh, by a number of authors. Uh, in, in particular, there's uh, a work by Mary Douglas called Thinking in Circles, which uh, looks at the phenomenon of ring composition as part of the structure of the Old Testament, particularly the books of Numbers and Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible, which uh, actually a lot of modern readers are not terribly familiar with because they view it as difficult reading. And part of the reason is because they're structured in a way that we moderns are not very used to because we are accustomed to linear types of presentations. And so frequently modern readers will look at ancient texts and say that they are hopelessly confused. They have no organization, and are hopeless. So it turns out that a lot of ancient literature is composed in this way, including Homer's Iliad in Greek. There's a recent study of this called The Shield of Achilles, which goes into minute detail to show you how the entire structure of, of the Iliad is planned in, in a fantastic way 
as a program. And when you see this kind of structure, it's empirical because the connections are made through vocabulary, which is repeated and similar words that are used in, in balancing places. And so uh, over time, I think this becomes a very persuasive point. If you can discover a symmetrical organization, then not only does it tell you how the work is structured until you have a sense that it actually is structured, but it will tell you what some of the central points are. And uh, it's also worth uh, emphasizing that this is found throughout a lot of the literature of the ancient Near East in languages like Akkadian, as well as in Hebrew. And in Arabic, it is a particularly strong feature of Arabic poetry from the pre-Islamic period all the way up through, say, the 13th century. And it is kind of odd and ironic that in most of the world where it used to be that people would compose in this way, perhaps because of habits of oral composition that date from an earlier sensibility, uh, people have forgotten of what this kind of structure is. And so we've had to re-educate ourselves. And, and a lot of recent work has been done in New Testament, uh, Iranian literature, Chinese literature, and so forth. And so we're, we're rediscovering this. But I think it's it's uh, there's a pretty good case to be made that this is a widespread phenomenon. How does it help us with the Quran? Well, uh, it turns out that, uh, and here I think we are indebted to particularly the work of the German scholar Angelika Neuberg, who in uh, a number of studies has really done a lot of work on uh, the structure of the Mechansuras in particular. She's one. Uh, scholar who's made it possible for, under, for us to understand that many of the surahs of the Quran have a, uh, a double structure or a three-part, tripartite structure, uh, which is also a feature of the, uh, the general format of the monotheistic worship service as we find in Jewish and Christian and allied traditions. Uh, that is to say, you'll have an opening prayer, a recitation of scripture, and a closing uh, prayer sequence. That's something we find in the monotheistic worship service. In It's also a feature of the uh, pre-Islamic uh, ode, or Hasida, which is considered to have a threefold structure. Um, but when we get to the Quran, uh, there have been uh, a number of scholars who have tried out ring composition with pretty convincing results. And there's a lot of uh, shorter mechanisms that have this kind of threefold structure. And what's really been amazing, though, is to see that the really long compositions of the uh, late Medinan surahs, uh, which go up to, say, 250 verses in the case of uh, Surah 2, uh, and which to a lot of earlier uh, analysts have defied any kind of comprehension. In other words, people just almost gave up on being able to figure out the structure of, of these surahs. Now they actually uh, have yielded up their secrets, if you will. And um, in the work of a Belgian scholar named Michel Kuypers, uh, he has studied Surah 5 in a 
very uh, persuasive fashion and has produced a detailed outline of it. it it's a book of 500 pages um, on that one particular surah, which is only roughly 100 verses long. And likewise, we have a really convincing study of, of surah 2 uh, itself by uh, uh, Raymond Farron, who's a scholar at the American University of Kuwait and has promised to do some additional work along these lines. More needs to be done. And there are some of the uh, later Medinan surahs which still uh, defy analysis and people haven't figured out what's going on. But I think we can confidently say that there are portions of the Quran that really show this kind of uh, organization. And uh, that's going to really have some interesting impact. I mean, I'm approaching this material, as we've discussed earlier, from a literary point of view, not from a theological point of view. However, I think that people may be interested to think theologically about the implications of some of these passages once you read them in this light. Yeah, you actually, you touch upon that in the book. Um, why haven't more Muslim exegetes approached it with this ring composition approach? Uh, that is a good question, and it deserves an answer. I think that... Um, First of all, um, the interests of Muslim commentators on the Quran have been structured by primarily uh, legal and theological uh, agendas. Uh, in other words, the commentators on the Quran were approaching it looking for very particular points, and particularly those who wanted to have legal interpretations, they would like to come up with something very definite and very conclusive, and so they would sort of tilt in that direction. Uh, rather than looking for general, uh, wide-ranging uh, ethical uh, positions or, or principles. Uh, secondly, the approach of most of the commentators was to go line by line. And they really did not look at the structure of the surah as a whole. They would look at the particular verse, and they would talk about the grammar of the verse, they would talk about the vocabulary, about the references, about the stories involved, and and then they would very frequently try to extract a uh, a doctrinal or legal point out of that. Uh, it's actually a kind of I, I don't know exactly to say whether it's coincidence or what, but the um, the trend of actually looking at the surah as an individual unit did become prominent among Muslim scholars in the 20th century, roughly at the same time that the uh, European scholars were really developing their literary approaches to the Quran at the same time. So, uh, and there were people like Sayyid Qutb in Egypt uh, and uh, Islahi in Pakistan, who began to talk about the, the overall structure of the surah and just try to see its, its meaning in, in that way. And so this is being done by modern Muslim scholars. Why it was that the earlier ones did not in, engage in this? Again, I, I think it's partly de determined by the agendas of their, uh, of their approach. But um, in the same way, it's also true that Arab literary critics did not discuss symmetrical structure very much. I mean, they seem to have some awareness of it, but they didn't really feel it was necessary to comment on that. Nevertheless, I think you can demonstrate with a lot of confidence that 
symmetrical structure is part of the Arabic uh, ode, even though it's not really discussed very much by the commentator. So the question of whether or not the structure is there is separate from whether or not it was part of the conversation of later interpreters. Another important feature you talk about is uh, this idea of intertextuality. Could you explain what role that plays in the Quran? Well, uh, this is another really uh, fascinating issue because, um, and it is one that is assisted very much by a literary approach. And here's why. Theologically speaking, for many Christians over the centuries, it's just been assumed that the Quran was a fake revelation and false prophecy. So therefore, nobody needs to pay any attention to it. End of story. There's no conversation there. And while in early Islam, in the first century or so after the time of the Prophet Muhammad, there was a good deal of interest in earlier scriptures and stories, uh, which were referred to collectively as the Israeliyat, or uh, if you like, the Israelite material. Um, and they used that a lot to fill in the blanks because the, the Quran did refer very briefly to a lot of stories. And so people wanted to know more de details about how, what was the life of Moses, etc. And so there was uh, narrative material was brought in by people who, some of whom were from a Jewish background who'd become Muslims, but also from other Near Eastern sources. And so that Israeliot material was there for a while, but then roughly after, let's say, 750 or so, uh, the year 750, um, there's a trend which begins to view the earlier scriptures as having been corrupted. So even though the Gospel and the Torah and the Psalms are referred to in the Quran, and the Quran does actually have a lot of references to earlier scripture. It was felt by most Muslim scholars that you didn't really need to pay attention to that because if they were corrupted, if, for instance, the New Testament that Christians use talks about Jesus as the incarnation of God or the Son of God, they viewed that as a corruption, as some kind of distortion. So therefore, no need to refer to the Quran at all, sorry, or to the Bible at all. And uh, this theological wall has been a problem, therefore, to understanding the relationship between the, the Quran and the Bible. Now, if we just look at it as a literary issue, then I think we can open it up without worrying about you know who gets to take primacy or without trying to discredit the other source uh, because they really do form part of a historical tradition, a single historical tradition. So what this means is that if we look at it very seriously and with some knowledge of both texts, it's pretty clear that the Quran was aimed at an audience that knew a lot, at readers who were familiar with not only the rough outlines of the stories of the prophets, but with very specific details of biblical texts, both from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. There is also very clear reference and quotation from the Talmud, the very important Jewish post-biblical scriptures, from Christian 
legends of uh, martyred martyrs and uh, and apocalypses, and another material which may have more of a Persian reference. And so this intertextuality is a way of discussing the relationship between different texts without privileging one over the other, but simply pointing out that one refers to the other, and we can be very confident about that. So um, the uh, evidence for this is actually pretty good and pretty clear. And we can take, uh, for instance, I'll take you to the one example from the Talmud that is uh, worth looking at here. This is a well-known passage, which I think many people uh, are familiar with, namely, uh, when we have, uh, therefore we decreed to the children of Israel that whoever kills a soul, not as punishment for killing another soul or committing corruption in the earth, it is as though he had killed all humanity, and whoever gives it life, it is as though he had given life to all humanity. This is a quotation from the Quran, Surah 5, verse 32. This is remarkably close to a passage from uh, the Talmud, which reads as, as follows. For this reason was man created alone, to teach thee that whosoever destroys a single soul of Israel, Scripture imputes guilt to him as though he had destroyed a complete world, and whoever preserves a single soul of Israel, Scripture ascribes merit to him as though he had preserved a complete world. The thought in these two passages is just about identical. And so it's also interesting that this is quoted in the context, both in Genesis and in the Quran, uh, of the prohibition of murder and the story of Cain and Abel. And so the Quran is very clearly referring to uh, to both the Talmud and Genesis in this in this reference. And so uh, if you don't know that and you're reading the Quran, then you wouldn't have a clue that there is this relationship going on. So there's a lot of interesting examples of this. And uh, the Quran has a few typical phrases that it uses to refer to earlier writings. So it will say, uh, as in the example I quoted, we decreed or we wrote uh, when God is using the, the plural term we and that kind of a verb, it's very often referring to a specific text. Let me give you another uh, very specific example. Um, readers of uh, the book of Numbers may recall that the Israelites were commanded by God to go to the promised land. And in fact, they failed, except for two who were Joshua and Caleb. Now, Joshua and Caleb are not named in the Quran, but the Quran refers to the two who succeeded and who were saved. Now, this is pretty unmistakably a reference to Caleb and Joshua, and therefore it assumes that the readers of the Quran must have been familiar with this to such a degree that they would have known that kind of reference. But the Quran does not feel it's necessary to make that explicit. So uh, here is a way in which we can open up a lot of interesting uh, connections. I'll give you a, uh, another example that's pretty interesting as well. From the uh, In the New Testament, we have a couple of passages in the book of Luke, which are referred to in Christian tradition as the canticles or songs of Zechariah and Mary. 
And these are picked up on in the Quran and actually kind of rewritten uh, in a new form. And I should say that um, this type of rewriting of earlier uh, revelation is very typical of the history of prophecy. And uh, it's found in, for instance, the way that second Isaiah revises the first Isaiah. It's found in the way that the New Testament revises and basically reinterprets all of the Hebrew Bible and calls it the Old Testament in a form of, of valorization that is quite radical. And the Quran does the same kind of thing. So we find that these canticles of Mary and Zechariah are found, are present in Surahs 3 and 5 of the Quran in a re revised form. How is it revised? It refers not to Jesus, but to Muhammad. Jesus is not an incarnation of God. And the Israelites are not the only people who are expecting salvation. And so uh, this is a kind of revision that the Quran does, looking at the earlier texts and then representing them according to its own theological agenda. Now, people can still have debates on, on these issues. But I think what is interesting is it's pretty clear that there is some reference and discussion going on between these texts, which really connect them as a kind of literary uh, continuum. Um. There's one thing that you don't talk about much in the book, but you dedicate it to Nasser Abu Zaid. And I'm wondering where he fits into your understanding of how to approach the Quran and how he's been influential in your perspective. Well, uh, I had the opportunity to get to know Nasser Hamad Abu Zaid uh, towards the end of his life, and I found him to be an incredibly impressive uh, philosopher and thinker and, and religious scholar. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with him, I'll just briefly say something about his career. He was an Egyptian scholar who uh, was part of a, a tradition of literary study of the Quran, which uh, began in the 1930s with uh, the very important critic Taha Hussein and continued with a couple of his successors, Khalifullah, uh, and then getting down to Abu Zaid more recently. And he's written about this, uh, this school of thought. And they ran into some problems uh, because of the way in which sort of conservative forms of orthodoxy came to the fore in uh, centers of power in Egypt, particularly Al-Azhar University, uh, in a kind of defensive way. And you know, people were nervous about European scholars, Orientalists, uh, trying to undermine Islam as they, they apprehended. And in any case, um, people like Khalifullah ran into some political problems when they attempted to, to do some literary discussion of the Quran. And I think people were upset, perhaps, just about the notion that the Quran would be treated as an ordinary literary text. Uh, but the point that Abu Zaid and his colleagues wanted to make was that the Quran is revealed in a human language. It's aimed at an audience. There is language involved. There is rhetoric involved. And one should be able to understand the nature of that language and that rhetoric uh, without uh, necessarily taking away anything from its sacredness for believers. And uh, to do so in an honest, uh, intellectual fashion. So that was, in a way, the project of Abu Zaid. And... Uh, I think that he ran afoul of political conditions in Egypt, but in any case, he was attacked by uh, conservative opponents who denounced him as an infidel, as a traitor to Islam, and as an apostate. 
And it was actually ruled by an Egyptian court that he had lost his Muslim identity and his marriage was annulled. I mean, this was a terrible blow and a persecution uh, for a, a very honest intellectual and, and deeply religious man, too, by the way. Uh, very, very committed Muslim. So he had to, uh, he went to the Netherlands and took a position at the University of Utrecht. But he continued to write until until the very end. And and uh, his his work is is not being forgotten. I mean, even though in places like Egypt there are political constraints upon this kind of literary study of the Quran, and uh, he was controversial, he had many admirers there. And in many other Muslim countries, his work is being studied very seriously. Uh, I would add that uh, it's, his major works have been translated into Persian and into Indonesian, although they have not been translated into English yet, I'm sorry to say. And there are a lot of scholars in those countries who are really very seriously uh, taking his work forward and his emphasis on the rhetoric of the Quran and its, its function of discourse and, and, and the like. And I absorbed a lot of that when he, he was working, uh, he was on the dissertation committee of one of my uh, PhD advisees, uh, who is uh, Dr. Peter Wright, who is now teaching at uh, Colorado College. And uh, Peter Wright did a very fine dissertation on the entire school of Quranic interpretation that developed in Egypt in the 20th century, including Abu Zaid. And so that was, that, that made a big impact on me. And I, I guess I should, you know, really, and I do give credit to, to both Peter Wright and, and uh, Abu Zaid in, in, in the book for really drawing my attention to all of these uh, really remarkable conclusions that may be obtained from a, a literary reading of the Quran. Well, Clara, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, before I let you go, though, I know you're very busy, but uh, could you tell us about some of the projects you're working on now? Certainly. Um, well, <clears throat> I get pulled in a number of different directions, but two projects that I am uh, working on at the present time, uh, I'd be happy to just briefly discuss. One of them is um, I had a long-standing interest in a major uh, figure from early Sufism who was Halaj. His full name, Al-Hussein ibn Mansur al-Halaj. He was executed in Baghdad in the year 922 and has always been a remarkably fascinating figure. Uh, his work was brought to light in the 20th century by a French scholar named Louis Massignon. And what I'm doing is uh, I'm translating the poetry of Halaj from, uh, from Arabic uh, as I'm translating it as, as poetry. Very powerful stuff. Um, Massignon recovered uh, approximately 90 plus poems from different sources. Uh, subsequently, other scholars have enlarged the, uh, the pool a bit so that it's most commonly agreed now that about 110 poems are quite likely by uh, Halaj. And I'm pretty much through with my first draft of the translations. Um, they're just fascinating. And uh, it's quite interesting to note that, for instance, you can find um, roughly a dozen YouTube videos of people who are reciting 
his verses to music uh, today on the internet. And so they continue to form a really uh, powerful uh, literary and uh, spiritual heritage. So, so that's something I'm, I'm taking forward. Um, and I hope to have that available to a publisher sometime this year. Um, and I, I've been giving a few papers on the subject uh, here and there. The other uh, major project that I'm working on, it's a, it's a longstanding one as well. And this one really uh, addresses the, uh, the intersection between Islam and Indian culture, particularly in the form of a series of texts on yoga that were widespread in uh, Arabic and Persian and Turkish and even in Urdu translation. And so the question is, these Muslim interpreters of yoga have been talking about this subject since roughly the 14th century. So what did they understand yoga to be and how did they relate it to other forms of spirituality or philosophy such as Sufism or uh, Neoplatonic thought or, or whatever? And how did they relate to uh, issues like uh, yogic postures, mantras, uh, the summoning of uh, yogini uh, spirits and and the like, and how do they relate to the fact that this was from a non-Muslim uh, tradition? So there's a lot of interesting questions, as you can as you can imagine, relating to uh, comparative religion and so forth. And as part of that, I'm I'm part of a team of people who uh, are working on uh, preparing a catalog for an exhibit at the Smithsonian museum in the fall of 2013 called Yoga, the Art of Transformation. Now I'll be talking about miniature paintings of uh, yogic postures that are in some of the Persian texts. That all sounds fascinating, as all your work is. Uh, thanks again for talking with us, and uh, maybe you can come back when one of those books come out, too. Well, thank you very much, Chris. And that was my interview with Carl Ernst about his wonderful new book, How to Read the Quran, A New Guide with Select Translations. I think everyone who's interested in reading the Quran should pick this up, whether you're a specialist or someone just interested in learning about the Quran for the first time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>